couple things I just want to follow up. Garrett, it was pretty cool what happened at the women's uh, Christmas dinner is that five of the six original elders' wives were together after 29 years, and they haven't seen each other, so they're all together. The, one that, the person that wasn't there was Jill Byington, and she has, she's with the Lord, so she would rather be there than here. Um, but, so that was pretty cool, this, the, sort of a little reunion there. And then with the men's thing, that is the best thing for men going, because you start out with breakfast, and then we, ha- and we did our first one last year, and it was fantastic. Uh, you start out with breakfast, and then you're done by 1 o'clock. So then you can go play golf or whatever you want to do. I mean, men, come on, give me a little. Yeah, okay, that sounds great. I like it just because, you know, we get in there, we do our thing, and we're gone by 1 o'clock. It's great. Okay, uh, Genesis 22. Would you stand? I'm going to read. We're going to pick up where we left off, but I'm going to revisit the first verses. We're doing this This. We started out as one study, it's become three, and I'm very thankful it has. It's talking about the cross, it's talking about our need uh, here, uh, all the time for the cross, so we're going to finish it up this week, uh, today with uh, Abraham built an altar. But let me read verses 9 through 14, if you would follow along with me. We want to stand because we believe that when we read the Bible, we're honoring God, and he, puts his, he exalts his word above his name, so by, in our Bibles, when we read it, we're hearing from God. Can you say an amen with that? It's his word for us, so we like to honor that, and we do respect it highly, so we're going to read verses 9 through 14, I'll pray, and then we'll, we'll get into it. So then they came to the place of which God had told him, that is Abraham, and Abraham built an altar there, and placed the wood in order. And he bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar upon the wood. And Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. So he said, here I am. And he said, do not lay your hand on the lad or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted his eyes and looked, and there behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by its horns. So Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up for a burnt offering instead of his son. And Abraham called the name of the place the Lord will provide, as it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. So Lord, we, we thank you that you have given to us, provided for us your word. And Lord, we again are so desiring to hear from you. We hear a lot of other things all the time, bombarded with all kinds of things that we're thinking of, and people. T- but Lord, what we need is to hear from you. And when we, when we hear from you, we know, Lord, that that is truth. We know it's life-changing. And so give us ears to hear, I pray. The things that I prepared, Lord, break them fresh for this time right now, going through this passage. You'd speak to us, give us ears to hear, help us, Lord, to to just surrender our lives to your word, to the truths that are in it, that we might be transformed, that, Lord, you might be able to do what you're calling us to do. And particularly, I pray this morning as we're talking about obedience and how so vital it is to have this relationship of obedience with you. Help us, Lord, I pray. Give us, again, humble hearts, listening ears, and a willingness to surrender everything to you. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. So the testing of your faith, as we just revisit a little bit, first of all, we looked at God tested Abraham. And so in verses 1 and 2, God tested Abraham after these things. And so we talk about the testing of your faith. There's a history to it. 
And one test leads to the next. Can I hear an amen? So we're not, we don't come out of the chutes getting born again and we're ah, instant Christians. No, it's a process that God's taking us through for, the, for our, all of our lives. We'll be tested. Abraham had gone through many years and God brought him to this place where he tested him. He was tested personally and individually, just like we are, by name, Abraham, Abraham. And then he was tested in the area of his love, his love for his son, but ultimately his love for God. Secondly, Abraham trusted God in verses 3 through 8. So Abraham went to the place that God told him. He saw the place afar off. That place was determined by God. It was a place of sacrifice and death in obedience to God for Abraham. And then he went to worship, verse 5. So his conclusion was, he concluded that God was able to raise him from the dead even if he had to kill him. God was calling him to kill him. He said, hey, if need be, God will resurrect him. And so then he said to those men who were with him, you stay here. I and the lad will go worship, and we will come back to you. So he went to worship, and it says there in verse 8, so the two of them went together. That is the father and the son. And in this whole story, you have the love of a father for the son and vice versa. It's not the love of a husband for a wife or a parent for the child. It's the, it's the picture of God the father and God the son providing on the cross for our salvation. So this morning we're going to look at Abraham built an altar. We might say that the remaining of this chapter is a worship service because we're looking now at Abraham obeying God and doing what he told him to do and these are difficult difficult things for us to comprehend as far as what Abraham was believing God for and obeying God in doing it. So this amazing account might be told as then and there, right then and right there. So let me give you that a little bit just again to broad picture of this chapter. First of all, you have in chapter 22, verse 2, read with me. Then he said, take now your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there. So then, there, Abraham took his son. Abraham took the wood and laid it on his son. Abraham took the fire in his hand and the knife, and the two of them went together. Credible picture. Verse 9, then there. Then they came to the place of which God had told him, and Abraham built an altar there. So they came to that place, it was a, and he placed the wood in order. He bound his son Isaac. Now, to put, our, put ourselves in the sandals of Abraham. He arrives at the place. It says he placed the wood in order on the altar. And then he bound his Isaac, his son. And then he laid his son on the altar upon the wood. And then it says he took the knife to slay him. This is deep stuff. The third time, verse 13 then Abraham lifted his eyes and looked, and there behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by its horns. So Abraham went and took the ram and offered it, notice, up for a burnt offering instead of his son. Then and there, the angel of the Lord called to Abraham from heaven, you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Abraham called the name of the place on earth, the Lord will provide. In the mount of the Lord it shall be seen. And then the second time, the angel of the Lord called a second time out of heaven. 
and said, you've not withheld your son, your only son. So this incredible prophetic chapter, alongside Psalm 22, Isaiah 53, detail the future reality of the significance of the cross of Jesus Christ. The father, now it says there, Abraham took his son, the father gave his son. The father slayed his son. The father provided his son from heaven, out of heaven, on earth. He did not spare his son. And so we go to, uh, to Romans chapter 8, this fabulous closing to this amazing first eight chapters of Romans. And Paul says this, what shall we say to these things? As my pastor Chuck said way back in hippie days, far out. <laughs> what shall we say to these things? If God, is God, if God is for us, who can be against us? He who spared not his own son, but delivered him all up freely for us all, how shall he not with him freely give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. He, who is he who condemns? It's Christ who died. Furthermore, is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who, who also makes intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As is written, for your sakes we are killed all day long. We are counted the sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him alone. How? Through the cross. Through the cross. It's incredible what God has given to us. We are counted the sheep. We are those things, but we are more than conquerors. For I am persuading you to life, nor death, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor, and if there's any other thing he hasn't included, shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which in Christ Jesus, Lord. That's the cross. It's the cross. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? The answer is no one. Abraham built an altar. What kind of altar was it? Abraham, listen, he didn't go to Costco to buy it. He didn't pack it up at home and take it with him. He built it on, the site, on site at Moriah. He built the altar with the raw materials that his creator graciously provided for him so that to communicate that he could come and worship in any place, at any time, and for any reason. That's worship. Exodus chapter 20. Moses just received the Ten Commandments. Then the Lord said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the children of Israel, You have seen that I have talked with you from heaven, the living God. You shall not make anything to be with me. Gods of silver or gods of gold you shall not make for yourselves. An altar of earth, this is the law of the altar, on the, on, an altar of the earth you shall make for me, and you shall sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen. In every place where I record my name, I will come to you, and I will bless you. This is the law of the altar. And if you make an altar of stone, you shall not build it of hewn stone, for if you use your tool on it, you've profaned it. Nor shall you go up by my... Nor shall you go up by steps to my altar that your nakedness may not be exposed on it. In other words, God does not require anything of man's ingenuity, man's creativity, or man's silver, or man's gold. Jesus said, 
God is seeking those who will worship him in spirit and in truth. In other words, right in the heart according to the rightness of his word. God is seeking, he's seeking worshipers who will worship him in spirit and in truth according to his commands. So the eternal God does not need anything. But oh, how we need everything from him. That's worship. That's what it means to build the altar. We're not bringing, we're just coming to the God who said, I must speak with you. I will commune with you. Acts 17, as Paul is in Athens, he stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are very religious. For as I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. Therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing him, I proclaim to Paul. This is, this is fascinating as far as Paul communicating the gospel to this pagan world. And he says, you got, you got this altar there to the unknown God. Well, I'm going to tell you about the God that you don't know. God who made the world, creator, and everything in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands. I thought of Solomon. He builds that whole incredible temple. And when he's all done and blessing, he says, God, who, the heavens of heavens can't contain you. How much less this building that I've built? You see, this is the God we're talking about, creator God. Nor is he worshiped with men's hands as though he needed anything since he gives to all life, breath, and what? All things. God does not need anything. And if he did, first, we're in big trouble. Second, we better be looking for another God. Our God is in heaven. Psalm 115. Not unto us, O Lord, not unto us, but to your name give glory because of your mercy, because of your truth. Why should the Gentiles say, so where is their God? But our God is in heaven. He does whatever he pleases. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of men's hands. They have mouths, but they do not speak. Eyes they have, but they do not see. They have ears, but they do not smell. hear. Noses they have, but they do not smell. They have hands, but they do not handle. Feet they have, but they do not walk. Nor do they mutter through the throat. You know, I've always thought, you know, it's pretty pathetic when you've got to carry your God around. Or drive your God around. Those who make them are like them. So is everyone who trusts in them, we become like what we worship. Inanimate, dead, not able to speak. I mean, just closing down all the things in which we've been made in the image of God. Oh, Israel, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. These other idols can't help. House of Aaron, oh, house of Aaron, trust in the Lord. He is their help and shield. You who fear the Lord. Now, we're going to find in verse 12 of this chapter that the angel from heaven says, because now I know that you fear God. He's saying here, you who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. The Lord has been mindful of us. He will bless us. He will bless the house of Israel. He will bless the house of Aaron. He will bless those who, there it is again, fear the Lord. Both God is a God who wants to bless our lives. May the Lord give you increase more and more, you and your children. May you be blessed by the Lord who made heaven and earth. Psalm 116. What shall I render to the Lord for all of his benefits toward me? I will take the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. 
I will pay my vows to the Lord now in the presence of all his people. In other words, I owe God everything. God owes me nothing. And as I worship him, understanding that he wants to bless, he wants to to take my life and commune with me, to know him and to walk with him and to experience the relationship he has for me. When I come, that's worship. I have nothing to offer. He has everything for me that I need. That's why I love that song, at the cross, at the cross, I surrender my life. I'm in awe of you. I'm in awe of you. (laughs) Where your love ran red and my sins washed white, I owe all to you. I owe all to you. That's worship. That's the cross. That's the altar. He built an altar. What happened at that altar? God met Abraham in an amazing, wonderful way. That's what happened there. Abraham came by faith in obedience to God. It's that simple. It's that profound. That place he came to, that altar he made, he came by faith in obedience to God. He came by faith in willing submission to God. His will was God's will. He surrendered everything to God. Secondly, he came by faith, and listen, God provided for his obedience. Third, he came by faith, and God blessed his obedience. Willing submission to God. Notice in verse 9, then they came to the place of which God had told him. And Abraham built an altar. There, and placed the wood in order, and bound Isaac his son, and laid him on the altar upon the wood. So now they've come to the place. They saw it afar off. God said, go. They start the journey. Three days, he sees the place afar off. Now they're at that place. And here came the place of which God had told him. Abraham placed the wood on the altar by faith in obedience to God. Abraham bound his son Isaac by faith in obedience to God. Abraham laid him on the altar upon the wood by faith in obedience to God. And obedience is always a step-by-step thing that God takes us through. And they came to that place. And so here at that place, Isaac now has a choice. Is he willing to submit his life in the hands of his father? Now, he's right around 33 years old. Some believe the same age as Jesus, as the picture goes. You got to know, a 33-year-old man probably would win any kind of battle against a 100-plus-year-old man. We read nothing of that. He didn't fight Abraham. Isaac is a picture of passive faith, I call it. That's not bad. But he always, as things came, he would take them as from the Lord and just... Let it, let it work itself out with the wells that he went through and all that. And so, he's a, so he, he, he just surrendered his life. And again, it's a picture of the cross. Verse 10, Abraham stretched out his hand, took the knife to slay his son. Now again, put ourselves in Abraham's sand, sandals. He, he brought the knife, brought the wood, brought his son. And now he stretches out his hands to take the knife. And he's going to slay his son. 
You see, here is where Abraham was fully submitted to the will of God. They came to that place where he has to do something that's probably contrary to every humanist thing about him. Everything about a father toward his son. But is he willing to follow through on what God commanded him? And he was. Romans tell, Hebrews tells us that, that God would raise him up from the dead if need be. He concluded that God would raise him from the dead if need be. And so Abraham stretched out his hand by faith in obedience to God. Abraham took the knife to slay his son by faith in obedience to God. Donald Barnhouse said this, 90% of, knowing, of the knowing of the will of God consists in willingness to do before it is known, unquote. And I believe that Isaac had already surrendered his will to the will of his father Abraham. I believe that Abraham had already surrendered his will to the will of God. The ultimate demonstration of God's love is in the willing submission of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, to the Father in laying down his life on the cross. That was decided in eternity past. Jesus said in John chapter 12, Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven saying, I have glorified it and will glorify it again. And you think of God these, these, in John 13 all the way through, through 20, 21 of that gospel. Talks about the glory, God's name being glorified. How? Betrayal, crucifixion, suffering. God glorifying his name because he is the God who is the God of love, the God of provision, the God of sacrifice, the God of redemption. Hebrews puts it this way Therefore, when he came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you had no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the volume of the book it is written of me to do your will, O God. Previously saying, Sacrifice and offering, burnt offerings and, and offerings for sin you did not desire. They can't accomplish what only Christ could, nor had pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law. Then he said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. He takes away the first that he may establish the second. The law was given to, to reveal sin, our need for a Savior. Jesus came to fulfill all those things personally on the cross for our salvation. The cross is the altar. It's the place where God the Father sacrificed his own son so that we might be saved. He built an altar also by faith and God provided for his obedience. Notice in verse 11. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. So he said, here I am. And he said, do not lay your hand on the lad or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, since you have, you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. God stays the hand of Abraham. The proving of his faith is complete. The proving of his faith is complete. He did not withhold anything from God. 
You know, the proving of our faith is not so much how much we give, but how much we keep and hold back. Is it all God's? I think of Jesus sitting across from the treasury. And he's looking at how they give. There's this little widow there has two mites. It's all she and she puts that in. And Jesus, recognized it, was watching it, said, she put in more than all of them. All of them because she put in from her substance all that she had. The question is, how much are we willing to lay on the altar in obedience to God? By faith and obedience to God. Then Abraham, verse 13, lifted his eyes and looked, and there behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by its horns. So Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up for a burnt offering instead of his son. God provides for Abraham the great instead of offering the substitute. But Isaac, in verse 7, it says, Isaac spoke to Abraham on their way. Abraham, his father, he said, my father, he said, here am I, verse 7. Then he said, look, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, my son, God will provide himself the lamb for a burnt offering. So the two of them went together. And here is the great instead of, the substitute. There's the ram, but where's the lamb? The lamb had not yet come. John the Baptist was the announcement. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The Lamb would be coming. Jesus is God's provision. Jesus is the great instead of offering. Jesus is the propitiation, the substitute sacrifice for our sins. In John, 1 John chapter 2, we read, My little children, these things I write to you so that you may, that you may not sin. It doesn't say but if any, it says and if anyone sins because we all sin. If anyone sins, what we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and he himself is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. Jesus died and his death was sufficient for the sins of the world. 1 John chapter 4, verse 10. And this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. What is propitiation? It's a big word. Here it is what it means. It's the love of God satisfying the wrath of God and releasing the mercy of God. That's propitiation. God pro is for us. Did something to deliver us from the pit by taking action. That's how I look at it. Propitiation. The love of God satisfying the wrath of God. We're on the cross. And releasing the mercy of God. We're on the cross. At the mercy seat where the blood was shed. Verse 14, Abraham called the name of the place the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord it shall be seen. As I've talked in the last two, it's worth repeating. It happened on the exact spot some 2,000 years later where the Son of God was crucified on a cross. We'll read Isaiah 53. He was crucified on a cross, Psalm 22, prophesied by God. It was already determined from the councils of heaven in eternity past. This would come to pass. God will provide himself the lamb, the substitute, the propitiation, the sacrifice. God did not stay his own hand when it came to sacrificing his son. Because his son is the fulfillment. His son is that sacrifice. And it happened there just like God prophesied it would. And so there's no better commentary. There's no better explanation than Isaiah chapter, beginning in chapter 52 
in verse 12. And I want to read, just read through this because it's fascinating. Behold, my servant shall deal prudently. He's the suffering servant. He shall be exalted and extolled and be very high. Just as many were astonished at you, so his visage was marred more than any man. Now, this was written 400 years before crucifixion was even devised. So his visage was marred more than any man in his form, more than the sons of men. And literally what it means is he was beaten so severely, you couldn't even recognize him as a human being. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths at him. For what had not been told them, they shall see. And what they had not heard, they should consider. Who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord, that's Jesus, been revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground. He has no form or comeliness. And when we see him, there's no beauty that we should desire him. He's like a, he looked like a normal human being, which he was. Normal in that sense. He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we did esteem him. We did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But, listen, the substitute sacrifice. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities, not his own. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, not some, everyone to his own way. And the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not. I think of Pilate saying to Jesus, are you not speaking to me? Do you not have power to crucify you and power to release you? You're not speaking to me? Jesus said, you could have no power at all unless I give you from above. Therefore, the one who delivered me to you has the greater sin. From that moment on, Pilate sought to release him. But the Jews cried out saying, if you release this man, you're not, you're not Caesar's friend. Whoever makes himself a king is an enemy of Caesar. And right there, Jesus said nothing. He had nothing to defend, nothing to, he's just saying, Pilate, are you saying these things on your own? Did someone tell you about this, or are you thinking that on your own? And he just took, it's not like he put, what happened is, Pilate's on trial, the Jews are on trial. Jesus is there to die for their sins. He was taken from prison and from judgment, and who will declare his generation? For he was cut off, that means, that's literally a violent death. He was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people, he was stricken. And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich at his death. It happened just like that because he had done no violence nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He, put, he has put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his, death, his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. You see, he rose again. That's what he's talking about. He rose again, and there's coming another the kingdom. He's coming again. There's a second advent yet when these things are going to happen. 
2 Corinthians 5.21, Paul puts it very simply. He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. <laughs> that we might become the righteousness of God in him. What an exchange. How? The substitute. The propitiation. God's provision for our sin. Abraham built an altar. And there by faith he came, and by faith God blessed his obedience. Then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time out of heaven. Now the first time he called out to provide the substitute, to stay his hand and provide the substitute. The second time he is approving and blessing his obedience. When Jesus died, his sacrifice was sufficient. It satisfied the wrath of God against all sin. And through that comes the blessings for the sinner. Verse 16, and said, by myself I have sworn, says the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son. Blessing, I will bless you. And multiplying, I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heaven and as the sand which is on the seashore. And your descendants shall possess the gate of, of their enemies. In your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So the angel of the Lord called from heaven. Abraham called it on earth. This is what's going to happen. And then in verse 15, the angel of the Lord called a second time out of heaven. And there, as he's, he's talking to Abraham, this angel of God, he's approving and blessing his obedience. Because you've done this thing, I will bless you. Because you've obeyed, your seed will be a blessing. Now note, Abraham never actually sacrificed Isaac, but he would have. And with that, God did not have to sacrifice his son, but he actually did. And Jesus is that substitute sacrifice that fills the gap for our salvation. Jesus did not have to obey, but he actually did in obedience to the Father. Hebrews 5 says this, Christ did not glorify himself to become high priest, but it was he who said to him, you are my son, today I begotten you. As he also says in another place, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplication with vehement cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, the garden, and was heard because of his godly fear, though he was a son, yet he learned what? Obedience by the things which he suffered, and having been perfected, he became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Jesus never had a moment of disobedience to the Father. He always did those things to please him. He who knew no sin, the perfect man, went all the way. He learned obedience. He learned the full. Now, I find myself, I'll, I'll, I'll obey God to a point, maybe halfway along the way. But then it gets tough, and, I and I'm disobedient. Jesus, not one millisecond was disobedient. He always did those things. He is the perfect man who is the perfect substitute sacrifice to die in our place on the cross and God laid on him all of our iniquity. The wrath of God was satisfied through the, by the love of God and God's wrath was satisfied. His substitute sacrifice was perfect because he was perfect. 
and he learned obedience. Listen, Jesus was fully man. He bore all the pain, all the suffering, all the agony. He was tempted in all points like we are yet without sin. He lived as a human being and went through all of that that he might be the substitute sacrifice for our sins. And so it says, he learned obedience by the things or through the things he suffered. This is how Paul puts it. Being found in appearance, what? As a man. He humbled himself and became what? Obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. That's obedience. His obedience is registered as mine in him. Verse 19, so Abraham returned to his young men, and they rose and went, there it is, together, to Beersheba, and Abraham dwelt at Beersheba. What's happening here? I want you to notice something in verse 20. Now it came to pass after these things that it was told Abraham. Look at verse 1. It came to pass after these things that God tested Abraham. The test is over. What he was going through, was it happened just as God had planned and provided. And God provided for his obedience. God blessed his obedience. Why? Because he came in submission to the will of God. And now he's back home. And this place, Beersheba, is a place of peace and prosperity. It's a little bit of heaven on earth for Abraham. God blesses obedience, but he cannot bless disobedience. Obedience to God is the living manifestation of faith in God. James puts it this way in talking about this story. James chapter 2. Some will say, you have faith and I have works. But show me your, show me your faith without your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that there is one God? You do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. It's more than just mental assent. But do you want to know, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son the altar? Now someone goes, well, hold on a second. Paul told us in Romans, you're not justified by works but by faith. Two different audiences here. James is speaking about our justification before people, men. Romans is talking about our justification before God. We are justified through the cross of Jesus Christ by faith in what he accomplished for us. But our faith has to have legs, feet. We need to walk it out. It needs to be seen by others. We can, you know, talk is cheap. Could you say amen to that? It's cheap. I believe in God. I love God. Well, you look through the Bible, the New Testament and Old Testament combined, you look and say, if you love God, you're going to be obedient to God. If you love God, you're going to serve God. If you love God, you're going to do this and this. And it's always these commands of God that are going to be illuminating. Do I really believe God? Do I really believe in God? Do I really love God? And the hard evidence is in how I live my life. So James is addressing that. Do you see that faith was working together with his works and by works faith was made complete? No, it is not complete to just say I believe something. It becomes complete when I do something. And again, we're not working for salvation, but from salvation. We're working not to, to sort of get accepted. We are working from being accepted. And because now I have a relationship. Now, let me ask you something. Relationship with God. Sorry, I didn't finish the sentence. <laughs> when you have a relationship with someone, it changes your life. That person has an impact, particularly in intimate relationships of, of human beings. When you have a relationship with God, it changes. It has an impact. Something is different. Something changes. It's what happens 
in interactive relationships. And the scripture of Philip says, Abraham believed God and it was accounted for righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. James adds that. He was called the friend of God. There's relationship there. It's an intimate relationship. It's a free relationship. It's a joyful relationship of a friend. Jesus said, you are my friends if what? You do what I command you. See, that's what friendship does. You see then that the man is justified by works and not by faith only. Now, obedience to God is also the hard evidence of our love for God. Deuteronomy chapter 30. I've set before you today life and good, death and evil, in that I command you to love the Lord your God, to walk in his ways, to keep his commandments, his statutes, and his judgment, that you may live and multiply, and the Lord your God will bless you in the land which you go to possess. He, by faith, he went by faith and obedience to God, and God blessed his faith. God acknowledged his obedience. God rewarded his obedience. That's what happens in relationships. Jesus said, verse John chapter uh, 14, if you love me, keep my commandments, and I will pray the Father to give you another help that he may abide with you forever. He knows we need help from obedience. Can I hear an amen? We need help. Jesus said, hey, I'm going to give you of the Holy Spirit. John chapter 15, verse 9, as the Father loved me, I also loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you'll abide in my love, just as I kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. There's a relationship that's abiding. There's this growing of love for each other at the cross, at the cross. God calls to us from heaven. I've given you my son. I've provided for your obedience. I've provided for my blessing. It's going to come if you'll walk with me and be obedient to the things I'm going to provide for you all along the way. So the question I'll close with here, we're going to take communion. Have you obeyed God? Are you obeying God? Will you obey God? You see, the cross is that place where I go in obedience to repent, where I go in obedience to receive mercy and grace, where I go in obedience to be forgiven and find a cleansing. It's at the cross. There God's provided those things for me. By faith, I willingly submit my will to God at the cross. We're coming back to the cross. Paul said, God forbid that I should glory except in the cross of Jesus Christ by whom the world is crucified to me and I to the world. That's where the change takes place. That's what happens. In fact, after this whole thing, do you not know that in Beersheba, Abraham and Isaac came back very transformed men? That's what the cross does. It changes everything. How I look at everything. If there's no cross, I'm in deep trouble. But there at the cross, I find God's forgiveness. I find God's redemption. I find God's uh, restoration for me in my heart and then for him through me in my relationships. It's at the cross. So by faith, God provides for my obedience at the cross. It's a starting point every time. By faith, God blesses my obedience because of the cross. At the cross, God offers salvation through repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. What is that? It's obedience to the gospel. Do you know the Lord Jesus this morning? Have you obeyed the gospel? Have you confessed that you're a sinner before God? Have you confessed that you need forgiveness from God? 
Have you acknowledged you have nothing to offer God? Have you acknowledged that Jesus died for your sins on the cross? God provided for you. Have you acknowledged that you need to make a decision? Do you want a relationship with God or not? God's provided through the cross, through the gospel. Have you obeyed the gospel? I'm going to ask you if you haven't, just to think on that now, seriously. Because there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. There's no other name. There's no other. It's one place. It's at the cross. And there God offered his son for your sin. He offered his son that you might come to him and be forgiven and be cleansed and be justified and know him filled with the spirit. In being saved, we're born again by the spirit of God. We're new creations in Christ by the spirit of God. We're sealed by the Spirit of God. We're filled by the Spirit of God. We're led by the Spirit of God. And the last thing I want to be doing is grieving the Holy Spirit of God. How? Disobedience. God has provided all of these things through the cross, the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. So we're going to take communion in a moment, but I'd like to share. The men can go back and get that ready. Have you obeyed God? Do you need to come to the cross and find God's forgiveness? Are you obeying God? What's going on in your life right now? Will you obey God? Are you willing to lay it down again in obedience to God? Paul said, God forbid that I should boast up in the cross of Jesus Christ. We're at the cross, the altar, in communion. So what about your need for salvation? Have you come to the cross? Your need for forgiveness. Your need for peace with God. Your need for the peace of God. Where? At the cross. Your need for freedom from sin starts at the cross. Have you obeyed? Are you obeying? Will you obey? It's an invitation from our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, to come the cross what kinds of things are you taking into your mind what are you watching what are you listening to what are you reading are they things that are pleasing to God are they things that are not grieving the spirit of God in our culture we need to have a a resurfacing of that question what are we doing with the things you see Whatever comes in, goes in, comes out. If we sow to the flesh, we reap corruption. If you sow to the Spirit, you reap eternal life. Whatever man sows, that shall he also reap. And I have sowed my wild oats and thinking I'm going to get a crop of wheat. It doesn't work that way. What kinds of things are you taking in your mind? What kinds of things are you taking into your body? Are they good for you? Are they helpful for you? Here's one that I'm under conviction about often. What kinds of things come out of your mouth? You see, what I've come to understand is my flesh will never, God didn't call me to transform my flesh or reform it. He said, kill it. Where? At the cross. Crucify the flesh with all its affections and lusts. I used to be called garbage mouth. And when I get in certain spaces, that old man starts rising up again. Lord, forgive me. 
That's all I can ask. Apply the cross to these things. Does God have any say in some of these matters in your life? Romans 12 says, I beseech you, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Notice that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. I call that the gap. G-A-P. What is the good and acceptable? It depends on whether you're being conformed to the world or transformed by the renewing of your mind. Where? At the cross. When we see the cross, we understand the cross, what God has provided for our obedience, well, how God will bless obedience. These things become something that begin to take root, that change me to doing the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Does God have any say in what you do with your time that he gave you? Do you even ask him? Are you spending time with him? Because if not, he misses you. Are you staying in fellowship? Are you attending church regularly? These are things in the Bible that we're told to do. Does God have any say in what you're doing with your talents? Are you developing them for the glory of the kingdom? Or only for you? To enjoy. Are you serving as a member of the body of Christ? And if you're, this is your church, you should be serving as a member of the, every part doing its share. Are you doing that? Does God have any say in what you do with your talents? Here's one. Difficult one for all of us. Does God have any say in what you do with your treasures that he gave you? Are you giving all to God? as the steward of what are his? Are you generous, open hand, to the poor, needy? Are you paying your taxes? Are you tithing? See, God said in Malachi, test me in this. He said, if you'll do what I command you to do, I'm going to bless you like the windows of heaven being poured out. You can't even contain it. These are things God's commanded. The cross is ours to apply to all matters of life on earth in this journey that we're on. I willingly submit to God my will at the cross. By faith, God provides for my obedience, the forgiveness, the pardoning, the redemption, and the power. By faith, God blesses my obedience, just like he said he would. Let's bow our heads a moment and pray.